For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is the 10th Annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. Light a candle in the jack-o'-lantern and gather round the radio because the chills are about to begin. We're celebrating 10 terrifying years with a look back at the best, the scariest, and the most spirited stories about the dark side of the old Pueblo. Be warned, this program is not intended for the faint of heart. The exotic flavors of Halloween hold appeal for many creatures that are definitely not human. We'll begin the show with some friendly words of warning from Vanessa Barchfield. Little kids dressed as ninja turtles and fairy princesses may not be the only creatures on your stoop foraging for treats this Halloween. The Arizona Department of Game and Fish warns residents that jack-o'-lanterns and other tasty decorations may entice wildlife closer to your house than you'd like. Uh, We're particularly concerned about javelina. That's Mark Hart, who works with Game and Fish. Hart says desert creatures are always around, but they may become more intrepid, enticed by pumpkins and gourds that are left on porches this time of year. In 2009, a homeowner in the Tucson area was uh, bitten by a javelina when she opened her door to find a group of 10 feeding on a jack-o'-lantern. So what's a Halloween-loving homeowner to do? Don't worry, you can have your pumpkins without javelinas eating them too. Hart says all you need to do is keep them off the ground, out of reach. And it's not just a matter of public safety. Keeping critters away from pumpkins is in their best interest as well. Anytime a wildlife gets habituated to foodstuffs that are on the human menu, they can be quite uh, insatiable in their appetite for it. That's a problem, too, because it can cause problems for wildlife like obesity. And with the abundance of snicker bars within our own reach this time of year, we all have enough to worry about without being concerned about a javelina's expanding waistline. So remember, keep your pumpkins up high to avoid at least one fright this Halloween. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. Writer Luis Uria is best known for his novel, The Hummingbird's Daughter, about his great-aunt Teresita, who was known as the Saint of Cabora. While researching the book, Uria moved to a barrio in Tucson, where he began experiencing events that can only be described as otherworldly. Next, Luis Uria shares his experience with Amanda LeClaire. I, uh, I moved in. It was furnished and very artful, and... Um... I had a friend who was actually a, a, a biker, <laughs> and he uh, needed a place to stay, so he was sleeping on the floor of the living room of this place. And the first morning he was there with me, we were sitting in the main room, and the front door opened. The latch clicked, it swung open all the way and paused, and then swung half-closed again and just sort of waited there and then slammed shut. And the next morning at the same time, it happened again. Exactly the same way. The door unlatched, swung open, and was just open as though somebody were standing there staring at us. And then it slowly closed about halfway. And perhaps my error was jokingly saying, no, no, come on in. It's okay. Come on in. And the door swung open. As soon as that 
morning happened and odd things began to occur in the in the building some days all the light bulbs would be taken out of the lamps you would get up and the light bulbs would be unscrewed and lying beside the lamps so you know we were taking this as a semi amusing haunting situation at that point odder things began to happen and one of the odder things was seeing shadow forms moving around in the building and the room that i slept in had a door with a glass pane in it and the door was always open but it would reflect a, a little vista of the living room area and uh my biker friend slept out there i was lying in bed quite late at night i usually read late and i was just sort of looking toward my feet and i could see the the glass in the open bedroom door reflecting the living room and i saw the dark figure of what looked like a woman walk across the room toward the part of the room where my friend was and i thought what in the world and then i saw the shadow rush away like someone running and then his light came on and he said was that you <laughs> and i thought what we jumped up you know all the doors were locked and i didn't say anything when i thought good god did i really see that there there began a kind of matrix of weirdness around this building in general i would sometimes go out and drive around isawaro like go out to vale late at night pondering when i was trying to write you know sometimes you just want to clear your head and i had been out driving and i i came back it wasn't super late maybe midnight and they were standing out in the street Victor and the next door neighbor Lori in their sleep clothes she was in her pajamas you know he was in shorts so I pulled up and I said what is going on and they says the weirdest thing I said what and I said there was a fire I said what do you mean there was a fire and they said yeah there was a fire there were three fires <laughs> and someone had stacked filters from swamp with coolers on three parts of the ceiling above each of our sleeping areas and lit them on fire allegedly so we were standing there pondering this three fires they didn't hear anything how did anybody get on the roof and i said well they're out and he said yeah they're out and i said why is there smoke going by because we were looking there was smoke and uh, it turned out that the end unit the landlady's unit was on fire inside and uh Lori ran and called the fire department and Victor and I foolishly ran into the burning apartment because we thought her cat was in there and the bed had been cut open and set on fire you think first of all even if it's not a ghost there's some nut going around trying to burn the building down with us in it and whoever it was cut the bed apart i mean it was just cut to shreds and then set on fire Yeah, it was the weirdest. It was weird. Really. You know, that was that was that moment, I think, when you think, well, it's not just shadows, but there's something there's it felt like a vortex of creepiness was descending on this place, and I'll never understand why. You know what the combinations were. It was it was I I would say the oddest time of my life. 
That was essayist, novelist, and poet Luis Alberto Uria with a little Calexico. In 2012, Danielle Wing was a 10-year-old writer and member of the University of Arizona Poetry Center's book club. I asked her to read some of the poems that she and her young colleagues were writing together as a group. Now, learn the terrifying secrets behind one of this region's most obscure and misunderstood inhabitants. Five-headed cutie pie lives under a rock in the desert. He's always smushed. His orange head eats macaroni and cheese. The blue head eats humans. The red one slurps hot lava. The head with the green hair eats flowers and marshmallows. With his blue hand, he picks grass and makes it into a grinder. He flies to space with one wing, to the planet Applecore, and to Grandma's house, on Mars and to the planet Shark, where there are too many mouths, and the five heads explode, one at a time. Plush, 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 plush! When discussing the most rarely encountered inhabitants of the Southwest, one of the most fearsome is definitely La Llorona, the weeping woman. In 2009, teenager Cristina Lopez told about her own close encounter. La Llorona is said to prey on children who have lost their way. And that's exactly what happened to Cristina one dark and moonless night along the Santa Cruz River. There's a legend I heard growing up about a woman who drowned her children in the Santa Cruz River over a man who then left her anyways for another woman. And feeling remorse, the woman went back to the Santa Cruz River searching and searching for her washed away children. She then drowned herself and to this day, anyone and, and everyone who steps into the Santa Cruz River can hear her calling and crying for her children. About two summers ago, I went out with some friends to a party. I found myself stranded. I didn't have a ride, a phone, to reach anybody, nothing. So I didn't know what else to do. I just decided to start walking. Walking in the Ajo Wash. The Ajo Wash led to the Santa Cruz River. My feet were cold. I was barefoot. My hair was dripping with sweat and I was really scared. It was dark, it was laid out, and all I could think of was the legend I heard growing up. Pulling my way through the grass and trees, my face was full of tears and I was so nervous because growing up hearing that story, it just made me scared and I was trying as hard as I can to get out of the river but it seemed so long, like such a long walk. My feet were getting numb from all the rocks I had stepped on, the stickers. I looked all around me and I felt her presence, like I could almost feel her breath against the back of my neck. My hair stood up. It was pitch black that night, like pitch black. It was dark when I was first walking in the river, when I found myself in the river. Every which way I turned to look, I like, seeing white, just a white figure in the distance. 
I guess I thought so hard about it that I could like almost hear her voice, her cries, her wailing. I'm almost 100% sure that she was there. And I always thought of La Llorona as like just a regular legend, but that night it felt real. There's stories you hear from your parents and you believe them, you, you believe in Santa Claus, you believe in the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy. Anything your parents tell you, you just believe, you believe, you believe. And for kids, it's really scary to hear that kind of thing when you're living so close to the river that way. Like, And me, like, I was alone. There was nobody there to just be like, just calm down, Christina. Like, there's no ghost haunting the river. The sun was coming up, and I finally got out of the river. I made my, my way to my Nana's house, but just the way I felt was, like, unforgettable and traumatizing because I never want to go back to the Santa Cruz River. Day or night, it doesn't matter. It scares me. And now we continue our tour of the monstrous side of the Sonoran ecology with a strange account related by Arizona historian Jane Eppinga, a woman who really knows a tall tale when she hears one. Arizona is most fortunate to have a troll related to ancient Icelandic ogres. As you may remember from the Billy Goat's Gruff, trolls have an annoying habit of pulling people underwater. Just how one got into southern Arizona defies imagination, but there he is, Hank the Winslow Troll. Many attribute the essence of evil to Hank, but it just may be that he is lonely, being the only one of his kind in Arizona. However, he really bloodied up one kid, and the story became, don't go near the bridge or Hank will get you. He has been known to pull parked cars with lovers underwater. Hank the Winslow Troll has become quite special in Arizona lore. On a moonlit night near Clear Creek Bridge, a reservoir about six miles southeast of Winslow, you may rendezvous with this creature or at least see his bubbles in the water at midnight. Be careful though, he's waiting for you. Teenagers drinking beer after a high school football game have heard his low gurgling sounds and seen his bubbles in the water. One night, Hank gave chase to a high school track athlete. The kid broke all records, but no one was there to officially time him. Those who have seen him on the opposite bank describe Hank as covered with dark, slimy feathers. His head appears to be flat in the front and the overall shape of an egg. Hank's head is also disproportionately large for his body. He usually crawls along on all fours, but when he stands up, he's about nine foot tall. He's just under the water, gurgling along, waiting to pull you under. <laughs> Stay tuned, if you dare, for more of this haunted Halloween edition of Arizona Spotlight, right after this break. <laughs>
Welcome back to the 10th Annual Haunted Halloween Arizona Spotlight. And now, another poem read by Danielle Wing, one that accomplishes more in three lines than many contemporary horror writers can do in three volumes. My Mask of Vampires by Seamus, age six. I see oak trees. I hear trees rustling. I talk of blood. (laughs) Dr. Scar would approve. In real life, actors Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff shared mutual respect and a cordial friendship as Hollywood's most popular boogeymen. Between 1934 and 1940, they made eight films together, but rarely did both of their characters survive. Next, Christy Scheel confesses his appreciation for one of Boris and Bella's strangest collaborations. Universal Studios dominated the successful horror film genre of the 1930s. The studio's films, starring characters like Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman, had an unmistakable style, largely due to the expressionistic flair of directors like Todd Browning, James Whale, and Carl Freund. But how can I explain my affection for the least typical of Universal's horror films, 1934's The Black Cat, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer? It won't be easy, because by most conventional measures concerning story, dialogue, or even just plain scariness, The Black Cat would usually be judged absurd, a failure, even a bad film. Supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. But it's the utterly unique qualities of this movie that fascinates me. The way that gothic elements have been pared down to the point of abstraction, through which we can hear a faint, sad, and poetic melody. The opening credits say, suggested by the Edgar Allan Poe story, and that's nonsense. This film has nothing whatsoever to do with the Poe story. There is a black cat in the film, and one of the characters has a phobia of cats, but it's pretty meaningless, and I suspect the cat was put in there so they could use the title. Bella Lugosi plays an Austrian doctor, recently released from prison, who seeks revenge against a mad former officer and engineer, played by Boris Karloff, who stole Lugosi's wife and seduced his daughter. Karloff has designed a futuristic castle in Hungary and built it on the very ruins of the fort he betrayed to the enemy during World War I. Into this situation stumbles a pair of American newlyweds, played by David Manners and Jacqueline Wells. Karloff, wearing a bizarre triangular haircut and a uniform that looks a little like a bathrobe, decides to sacrifice the young wife in a satanic ritual. A key scene revolves around Karloff challenging Lugosi to a game of chess. Do you dare play chess with me for her? Yes. I will even play you chess for her. Provided if I win, they are free to go. You won't win, Beatrice. Audiences must have been startled seeing Karloff roam the dark halls of his castle where glass cases contain the corpses of women he has murdered dressed in white and evidently stuffed as in taxidermy, in standing positions as if they were floating midair. But the finest touch of all comes practically from out of nowhere. After Lugosi botches a murder attempt, Karloff talks quietly to him. As he speaks, the camera rises through the rooms of the castle, moving hypnotically through the hallways in gentle rhythm with his voice. 
It touches on the sad undercurrent of the film, the obscenity of the war in which millions died for nothing. Of what use are all these melodramatic gestures? You say your soul was killed, and that you have been dead all these years. And what of me? Did we not both die here in Marmaris 15 years ago? Are we any the less victims of the war than those whose bodies were torn asunder? Are we not both the living dead? Edgar G. Ulmer was an Austrian-Jewish emigre who came to the U.S. as an assistant to F.W. Murnau, one of cinema's all-time greatest directors. From the master, he inherited a love of the slow tracking shot and the innovative use of screen space and lighting for emotional effect. He was a true independent, working for small producers on the margins of the industry, all his life having to work within tiny budgets making B-films. The Black Cat was the only film he directed for a major Hollywood studio. Devil worship, necrophilia, torture, incest, even drug addiction gets hinted at, which is all very heavy stuff for 1934, although sadly, not so much anymore. Plus, Lugosi got to play the good guy for once. Sort of. You know, I was tempted to call the black cat one of my guilty pleasures, but on reflection, I have to say, I don't feel guilty at all. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel wishing you a happy Halloween. In 2015, we were visited by then 12-year-old student Forrest Zeppesauer, who was intrigued when he read about Edgar Allan Poe in school. Young Mr. Zeppesauer decided to commit some of his poems to memory. And next, he'll take us to the edge of a lonely, moonlit shore, the setting for Poe's 1849 tale, Annabelle Lee. It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child, in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabelle Lee. With a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabelle Lee. So that her highborn kinsmen came and bore her away from me, to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know, in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabelle Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above, nor the demons down under the sea, can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so all the night tide I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. Over a decade of haunted Halloween shows, we've heard many stories about restless spirits, 
Regardless of what form you believe these spirits may take, it's part of many traditions that we should try to be at peace with them. Here's an essay recorded in 2014 about the true meaning of the season. My name is Anna Augustowska and I'm from Wrocław, Poland. I first came to Tucson in 2008 to visit a family friend. I remember it clearly. It was late October and my friend from Tucson said, since it's your first time in the US and it's this time of the year, you should go and see how we celebrate the Day of the Dead. Still jet lagged and under cultural shock, I went to the All Souls procession. There, I saw a variety of people celebrating and mourning the lives of their loved ones at the same time. The idea of celebrating death surprised me as much as their costumes and artifacts. I recall one woman who had a skeleton painted over her belly. She was, I think, six months pregnant. I came up to her and asked, aren't you superstitious? I'm not, she said. This will bring good luck. The events from Tucson remind me of how different the celebration of those who passed is in my home country, Poland. Our observance is neither loud nor colorful, but it does bring people together as the All Souls procession does. In Slavic tradition, both days, All Saints and All Souls Day, happens every year on the first and second day of November. They are devoted in particular to praying for the souls. On those days, Polish cemeteries are full of people who come to visit the graves of their loved ones. The candles are lit and the flowers are placed. People talk about those who passed and how their passing changed their lives. Two years ago, I lost my mother. If I were still there in Poland, I would go visit her grave today. My father sent me a picture of it the other day. He put flowers and candles. It looks beautiful. Although I live in Tucson now, I will connect with her this year from the All Souls procession. I may not be ready to carry her photo, nor wear a skeleton costume myself, but since souls don't recognize borders or distance, I know she will be there with me. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Anna Augustowska. Thank you for listening to this haunted Halloween edition of Arizona Spotlight. On behalf of all the souls who have contributed to this show over the last 10 years, I'd like to wish everyone a very safe and very scary Halloween season. Now go get some candy. Across the nation, just over 20% of teenagers are living with a mental illness. Join us for a special edition of Arizona Spotlight, Monday at 8.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. This special features a discussion of the complexities of youth mental health, and it's a companion to AZPM's documentary, Not Broken, which debuts Monday on PBS 6. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.